One Hope Church. But there's also a lot of great stuff in this um, this morning's lesson out of the first 15 verses of Acts chapter 17. Um, and so, again, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask God to teach you this morning uh, from His Word. Uh, and so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word because it is truth and it is what we need in our lives and it tells us all about you and what you have done and your great plan of salvation for us and that we can be part of your family and part of your church and part of your kingdom, part of your eternity. And so God, we give you thanks for the privilege to have the opportunity to look into your word this morning. We give you thanks that we can come together and and praise you with one voice this morning. And Lord, we pray that your word and your love and your truth and the message of Jesus would go forward throughout all the world. And we pray that it would do so in the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Before we read these verses, um, well, actually, let's go ahead and read the first four verses. It says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and some of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. And so this is the message. They had left, um, they had left from Philippi. They had success there. God had done great miracles there. We had people uh, like Lydia and the Philippian jailer and their households come to faith um, in Christ. Um, a church has basically been born in Philippi, and now they're on to the next place. And the next big stop they make is in Thessalonica. Um, and we know they have, a, a, as we'll see here, a great success there. Remember, we have a, books of the Bible, First and Second Thessalonians, which are written to the church at Thessalonica. And so those go hand in hand with this passage this morning. If you know, they're not long, if you want to read those um, this week, that would be great reading for you to kind of supplement our study here um, in the book of Acts. And so this message that they're giving, you know, it's Paul's custom. What he would do first, you know, is for, for the, on the Sabbath days, on the Saturdays, he would go in to the synagogues because he knew the Jewish people and the people who had converted to Judaism would be there to, you know, have the reading of the scriptures and to talk and to ask questions. And it was a dialogue that they could have there. And so he goes in there to reason with, with the scriptures. Now, the other days of the week, they're not just, you know, sitting on their hands. Um, sometimes they're working to provide for their own, you know, needs and other times they're going to be in the marketplaces and door to door, um, you know, telling people about the message of Jesus. But it says for three weeks, you know, he's explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead saying this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And so he's basically taking the Old Testament scriptures and showing them, hey, this promised Messiah, this promised Savior, the promised Christ to come, we, he already has come. His name is Jesus, and here's what he's done. He is the real Savior. He is the real King. You know, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You know, because Jesus has 
rocked his world. You know, he was set out. Remember who we're talking about here in this Paul that we normally know, know as Saul from beforehand had been one to go and try to destroy the church. And then he has that moment where he meets the risen Christ you know, on, the, on the way to, to do more persecution. And he has his life changed by Jesus. And so now he's not ashamed that he's changed everything in his life, that you know, his life has been turned upside down. He's, you know, he's not ashamed that he was you know, beaten and thrown into a prison in Philippi. You know, he's not ashamed for when people ridicule and say, you're a fool for believing what you believe. He's not ashamed. And that's a great lesson for us this morning. Don't be ashamed because Jesus is the Christ, meaning he is the king. And we see here, what is he teaching them? That Jesus had to suffer. I mean, you know, why did he have to suffer? He had to suffer at the cross because he had to pay for our sins. Because the Old Testament taught, as God taught, that there, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no payment for sins or doing away with sins. And so he had to go in to die, but he also had to rise again. Because if he didn't rise again, if there is no Easter Sunday, or, you know, but really every Sunday is what we celebrate. You know, when we come here and we take the bread and the cup and we celebrate that Jesus Christ is risen because if there is not a risen Savior, there is not a Savior. There's not a risen King, there's not a King. We have nothing. Pack it all up. Go to the Y. Go, go do whatever. Whatever else you want to do, whatever else you want to do, do that. But if Jesus is Savior and Jesus is King, come to his table and re- take the bread and take the cup and remember the one who purchased your eternity at the cross. Remember the one who had victory over sin and death. If he's really Savior, if he's really King, then do that and preach his name. Remember him, but don't forget about him after Sunday morning when we walk out the door. But continue to remember him and to proclaim him and like Paul said, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Because the reality is, whether you have a short time on this earth or a long time on this earth, you know, everyone who's come before us, almost everyone has seen the grave. We have a couple of exceptions in scripture where people were taken straight to heaven. Guess what? Probably not for you, unless Jesus returns first. But even then, there's still a clock and it's ticking for your life. For your time on this earth, there's a clock and you don't know how much time is left on it. You don't know how much time is left on it. You know, and you'll see this if you watch sports, you know, you'll see at the end of the game and that clock is, is getting shorter and shorter and, and you see a team that's behind and they start putting forth more effort because that reality is beginning to set in, if there's not a change here over the next few minutes, we lose. We better leave everything out. But you know, the thing about life is, we don't know the number on that clock that's ticking down, that has 24 hours less on it right now than it did yesterday at this time. That clock is ticking down. 
And, you know, the problem is when we're young, you know, because I remember being young. I remember being 16, 17, 18 years old. Well, I'll tell you this. I remember being five. I remember being five. I wanted to drive the car. I wanted to drive the car, and I said, when do I get to drive the car? It's like, well, when you're 16, you get to drive the car. 16, that's, I mean, that's many lives away (laughs) when you're five. You know, that's like, that's a long, long time. That's twice as long as you've lived at that point. It seems like forever. Now you, you know, you know, now being 41, almost 42, and looking back, That time goes fast. And let me tell you, the time from 20 to 40, boom, blink of an eye. Blink of an eye is what it feels like. It goes fast. Hannah Rose being six, Claire and I were talking this week and going, you know, it's likely she turns 18, she's out of our our house. One third of our time with her in the house, done. Are we one-third ready in her maturity, and her, like, preparedness? We're not going to get those days and hours back. Not going to get that time back. You know, it matters. What we do with that time matters. And I, and I say that this morning with, with a heaviness, you know, on my heart. I grew up in Augusta. My mom taught at Augusta Christian School, so that's where I went to school. It's kind of like a by default, you know, sort of thing. Um, and this last Saturday, a 17-year-old senior, uh, Saturday morning, was driving his you know, truck on the parkway and lost control and was in a terrible accident and ends up um, in a coma. And on Thursday, he passed away. Um, Thursday, his life was no more. 17 years old. 17. Nobody saw that coming. But his family and his friends have a reason to be confident that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. They have a reason to be confident that you know, he is with Jesus because of his, his proclaimed faith, but also you know, the testimony that he lived it out. The testimony that from you know, since ninth grade, he'd been meeting with his, his friends to pray for his classmates. You know, you know, when they went on their senior trip to Los Angeles uh, for a mission trip, whenever they say, hey, we need somebody to share their testimony, he'd be the guy that says, I've got this. I'll do it. You know, his, his parents can, can know they help prepare him in his life, that they, they help mold a, a young man that would be ready. Um, he, played, he played on the baseball team. And um, I'm going to tell you just two things because I, I think they're moving, they're, they're gripping. Um, the, day that he, the day that he died, his team had a baseball game. He, played, he started at third base. And so uh, when they did the, his family actually, I mean, this is the day he died, his parents came to the game. Um, and they had a prayer beforehand that was, that was powerful. Both teams participated in that. And then when they called out the starting lineups, they, his name Drew Passmore, and they called out his name starting at third base. And his buddy ran out there with his jersey and with his glove and set it on third base, pounded the ground, ran back to the dugout. And they threw that first pitch with his jersey, his glove, there at third base. And 
and they called him the sub. That's powerful. That's a reality. He's not there to play third base anymore. Powerful. But one of the other things, um, a team they played a, a couple weeks prior, they had a number, he was number 11, so they had a number 11 in front of their dug, the home team dugout. And the away team, all the kids came when their name was called, and they put a rose there. And the coach came up, and he had a picture blown up from the game they had played a few weeks before with uh, Drew had tagged out a kid at third base that they had slid in. He tags him out, and then he puts his hand down. The picture is of him lifting him up because that's the type of player that he was. You know, it wasn't just about winning. It wasn't just about getting the kid out. It was also about being a good sport. And um, those are the type of uh, young men and young women we want to raise. Ones that have a, a, real, a spiritual reality that is played out in their daily life. And that's why all of this is so important. That's why it's important that as a church we send people you know, to, to work with our brothers and sisters in, in Mexico and go you know, and, and you know, drive two, three hours up into the mountains to, to talk to people and to share Jesus with them, to drive back two or three hours to do it again the next day. You know, and I want you to think about this. You know, the church there, Eduardo's grandfather is, is, is dying in, back in Zacatecas. It's on the other side of Mexico. And the, the, our brothers and sisters there you know, in Veracruz say, hey, if they're willing to receive them, we'll immediately send, you know, some brothers from our church to go and to share the gospel with him before he dies. We'll send them now. You know what that's like? Let me give you equivalence. That's like somebody coming here and being like, oh, yeah, we'll send somebody to Chicago. You know, we'll, we'll send Jimbo and Marcus to Chicago this week. We'll, you know, they're going to they're they're drive up there and go talk to them and drive back 15 hours, 15 hours. That's the equivalent of what we're talking about here. And that's, that's what, you know, things like that happen when you really believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Things like that happen when you really are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and you are convinced that it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You know, you become bold and you go the extra mile and you do what it takes because you want to reach the next Drew Passmore. You want to, you want to reach the next Eduardo Serrano. You, know, you, you, you want to you reach the next one. You want to reach the next one. And sometimes you get people after they've done terrible things and, and have really done a lot of damage in their own lives and in a lot of lives of others, but how much better to get people before that? But there's sometimes a cost with all of this because when these people here in Thessalonica become believers, you know, it, it starts to change things. And, and, you know, people don't like it when their traditions get messed with. People don't like it when their cultures get messed with. And so what do they do? 
in verse 5, it says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them or given them shelter. And these things are all contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So that when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so you see here there's trouble. Because again, people don't like it. When their traditions, when their cultures, when their ways of doing things, the way they've done things for a long time, get messed with. You know, and some of that got alluded to uh, you know, in, in the conversation this morning with some of the reports about, you know, why are things so tough in, in certain places in Mexico and in Zongalica? And, you know, there's a lot of spiritual warfare in Zongalica. But you've had, you know, now for several hundred years, this mixture of these indigenous um, cultural beliefs of, of worshiping, you know, nature and, and the things of the afterlife, afterlife there mixed in with, you know, a, a works-based Catholicism. And it's all a jumbled, like, mess. There's nothing clean about it, you know. But the fact that it's been going on for a long time, you know, when you come in and say, hey, you, you know, you can't work for it. Jesus offers it to you as a gift, when you say, hey, you don't need to put food on the coffin to t- you know, for your relative to take into the afterlife. Be- you know, that's not going to help them. People get really angry because you're messing with their cultures and their traditions. But what about in your own life? When your own culture gets messed with, your own tradition gets messed with. And in our deal where individualism is key... And it's a, you know, it's a buffet of pick your own, you know, beliefs, pick, you know, choose your own adventure. And then that gets messed with when you read the scriptures. That gets messed with when Jesus is preached that he is the savior and the king. And when Jesus, when you read the scripture and Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And, and Jesus comes after those things in your life that are contrary to him. Then what? And in this case, what the people do here is like, okay, how do we get more people on our side? And this is really what's interesting because you know that old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, here's kind of what happens in this case because, you know, these... You know, religious people are going to go take, you know, bad people who are known for criminal activities and, and like stir up a mob. And then, you know, their whole teaching in the Old Testament has been, you know, there's one true God, follow him. And now they're going to say, hey, they're messing with our customs because, you know, Caesar's king. And they're saying there's this other king named Jesus. I mean, you see how they're even willing to betray themselves. And to betray their own beliefs in order not to follow Jesus as the true Messiah, as a true Savior, as the true King. So they say, hey, Caesar, they're they're saying there's another King, Jesus. And this is problematic because, yes, indeed, 
you know, the scriptures teach that there is one true king and his name is Jesus. And, you know, so there's an allegiance question that both Jew and Gentile have to answer in this period of time. But we also have to answer this today. Because no matter where you're from, where you're from, you have to understand if you love your country more than you love the kingdom of God, that's wrong. That's wrong for a follower of Jesus. If you have more allegiance to any earthly ruler than you do to Jesus, that's, that's wrong. No matter who that earthly ruler is. Jesus deserves and demands your first and highest allegiance. All others have to pale in comparison to him. Even in your own family. I have to love Jesus more than I love my wife. Now, ultimately, that's best for my wife. You know, and ultimately, it's best for my nation if I love Jesus more than I love my country. Because that's ultimately going to make me a pretty good citizen, you know, because I'm not going to go around like murdering and robbing and, you know, those sorts of things. Actually be a pretty good citizen if I do that. I'm actually a pretty good husband if I love Jesus more than I love my wife. If I try to put my wife first in everything, I end up being a pretty terrible husband. But, you know, Jesus taught us that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. In John 17, begin verse 13, it says, But now I have come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. And so what do we see in this? That you know, God has us to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be in the world, to be lights in the world. We are not to be caught up in its wickedness. And just to play the games that our world plays right along with it. But we're to actually read and understand what Jesus said and to, and to follow him. And when we find ourselves being pulled in two different directions, when we have that conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's not for you. We actually need to listen and say, you know, that in the world is not for me. We actually need to listen to that and follow Jesus in that, as opposed to just making cultural excuses. But so many times it seems like we would rather to participate in the sin of our world than to participate in the mission of Jesus to reach our world. And that's where we have to make decisions. You know, that's where we have to make choices that are real and that matter. Real and that matter. And sometimes there's a price to pay. You know, Jason, when he became a follower of Jesus, he didn't have this idea that half the city is going to be beating down his door. Looking for Paul and Silas. But it came to him. 
But you know, the cool thing is in it, you see that he's gained reality because you know, you don't have, you don't have a picture here. You don't have a scene here of Jason saying, Hey, wait, time out. You know, I'm, I'm really just all, for, I'm all for Caesar. I'm all for Caesar. You know, not for, not for Jesus, all for Caesar. You don't have that because now he's got a conviction of what the truth is. And he's experienced the love of Jesus for himself. And he's willing to endure it. And you don't see him being ashamed and you don't see him shrink back. And that's a beautiful thing. What's not written in here in scripture is beautiful. It's beautiful. Of what Jason stands up, you know, under the pressure. And it's going to cost him. They took security from him. They took money from him. You know, it's going to, it cost him financially. Now what's going to happen? I don't know what business the man is, but has, but maybe he's going to have a hard time for the next while. People aren't going to come to his shop. People aren't going to be asking for his services. You got to create some distance. Don't want to be, you know, associated with him. There can be some cost. Is he okay with that? It seems that he is. Praise the Lord. Verse 10, it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also some of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, Berea, they also came and stirred up the crowds, and then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So we see what's happened there. They go to Berea. The people there are more, it says, fair-minded. You know, they're, they're, they're more reasonable. And they're not, you know, reacting, you know, just emotionally. But they're thinking through things and they're searching the scriptures daily, it says. You know, trying to figure out, is this true? And when they take that search of the scriptures seriously, interesting things happen. A lot of them come to be Believers in Jesus. You know, and a lot of times that's all we're asking for, really, is we're asking for a fair hearing. Because the truth is powerful. God's word is powerful. And we ask people, you know, so we ask people, give a serious look. You know, a lot of times we're just asking, hey, just read one of the Gospels. Just read one of the Gospels because we believe there's power in the Word of God. That if somebody will sit down sincerely and read one of the Gospels, read about Jesus and his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, if they'll sit down and take the time to read it, that there's a likelihood, there's a strong possibility that their life will be changed by such an endeavor. If they, if they go in with a, a fair mind you know, to read it. And to seek to understand it. And so sometimes we're, we, you know, in our, our sharing Jesus with people, we're saying, hey, you know, please just give this a fair hearing. Just read it for yourself. Ask God to show you the truth. If you walk away with nothing, you haven't lost anything but a little bit of the time that you have anyway, which you're going to waste anyway. But you might be surprised 
You know, tell people, you know, you might be surprised by joy. You might be surprised by love. You might be surprised by conviction. You might be surprised by the power of Jesus. You might find yourself surprised, but just give him a fair hearing. Take two hours of your life to sit down with one of the Gospels and sincerely ask the question, Jesus, are you real? But, you know, the people that were jealous back in Thessalonica, they couldn't stand that this was being received in another place even. So they got to go there and stir up trouble as well. But it's okay. You know, sometimes we have this mentality that if there's trouble, then we've done everything wrong and, you know, we shouldn't have done something or we were, you know, if somebody's upset with us because we shared Jesus in the gospel, if somebody gets upset, then we automatically assume, well, we did it wrong. Well, how about just the reality that sometimes people, that Jesus is going to upset some people. That when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, not everybody is going to like that. And so we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with the fact that sometimes people are going to be upset when we share the truth of Jesus. Now, they need to be upset because we've shared the truth of Jesus. We need to be careful that we've done that in love. That we've done that in love. That they're not upset just because we're arrogant punks. That shouldn't be on the question. It should be known that our our humility, our gentleness, our patience, these things should be evident and should be known. If they're angry, they should be angry at Jesus himself. You know, so we we do have to be careful. We do have a responsibility how we give that message, that we do so with love and with kindness. Because guess what? The likelihood of you arguing anyone into the kingdom of God is really, really tiny. You know, of you just out-debating them into faith. You know, you, we don't, we're not trying to strong-arm anybody. We're not trying to twist anybody's arm to believe in Jesus. You know, we're trying to share it in love and in truth and to give them an opportunity. And, you know, and, and one of the things we, we have to learn, you know, how to, when people are... are you know, agitated, so that we have to learn how to disarm that. And, and one of the things that I've learned to do is just is, is to tell people, like, listen, I, you know, I, I want to share this with you because Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me. If I've got the best thing that ever happened to me, what, am, what sort of person am, am I? If I've got the best thing that ever happened to me, and it's free, and it can happen to you, and I don't share that with you. Like, what sort of a person would I be to not want to share you know, what I believe to be true love and true truth. What sort of person would I be if, if I just kept that to myself and didn't try to tell you anything about it? You know, I'd be the same type of person that sees somebody else headed, you know, driving down a, you know, a, a one-way road, you know, toward a bridge that was out. And I'm walking the other direction and I don't try to get them to stop as they're headed to certain death. What sort of person would you think I am? You know, and you say, oh, okay. Well, you know, that kind of, that could turn a switch to a reason. Anybody that's got some reasonability to, to them will go, okay, I might not agree with you. And I, and I still might not ever agree with you. But I get, your, I get where you're coming from. I get your point about that. You, you can understand the rationality in it. And, and, and that's kind of part of my argument this morning 
and, and argument might be a harsh word, is just, uh, more, how about challenge? My challenge this morning is that if we really believe that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation, as we see obviously that Paul and Silas and Timothy and those with them did as they went around and told everybody that, but if we really believe that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation, where is the evidence? You know, what is the evidence? And it's just it's a sincere question to challenge each one of us, myself included. Where is the evidence that that's what you believe? In, in, this, in this last week, again, a week, you're never going to get back. A week of your life, you're never going to go back. We go, look at back at that last week. Where is the evidence that you were convinced that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation? Because if we believe it, then there's going to be some evidence behind it. We're going to take some opportunities that God has given to us to speak for his name and to share his love with people. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're on the street corner. In certain contexts, that can do more harm than good. But it does mean you're going to be looking to share and to love. It does mean... If you're playing third base and you tag the guy out, you're going to try to help him up. You know, there's going to be some practical love in your life. There's going to be some practical love displayed in your life towards others. It's going to make a difference in how you love your enemy. Person who's made themselves your enemy. It's going to make a difference in how you treat your spouse or your fiancé or your girlfriend. It's going to make a difference in how you raise your kids. It's going to make a difference in how you do your work at your work. If you believe that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation, then everything kind of gets seen through that lens. And so this adversity that they go through is not seen as we're doing it all wrong, but rather it's, hey, you know, we're making a difference here and some people don't like that and that's okay. And that's okay. But they don't, you, you'll never find, this is what's really cool, and I want us to keep this in mind with Paul because I think people have a, a lot of times have a wrong idea about him. You'll never find him hating his enemies. Those that tried to kill him, you never find him hating them. And in fact, he actually says that if he could be damned, that the rest of Israel would be saved, he would make the trade. Now that's a powerful love. So, you know, when people have, oh, you know, Paul harsh, Paul this, Paul, no, understand the man's heart. Understand the man's heart. Because, you know, I, I don't know people that have loved that deeply to say, if I could make a trade and my family members and my, my, you know, other people in my city, the other people in my university, the other people in my classes, that I would be damned on their behalf if they could be saved. Where do you find that love? That's a deep, deep, deep love. He's, he had gotten to, hit, uh, to a place that I would contend that most of us have not attained yet in his walk with Jesus. So understand that. Understand that he has love for the people who beat him. 
and I'm trying to remember the guy's name, he suffered, um, in Asia, he suffered um, in prison. And he said, uh, you know, the deal was, if we preached the gospel to other prisoners, the guards would beat us. And he says, uh, we enjoyed preaching the gospel, and they enjoyed beating us, so everybody was happy. <laughs> that's, so that, was his, uh, that was his take, but that's powerful. You know, he, he's got a little humor in it, you know, but it's serious, it's powerful. And that's the sort of love, as the scripture says, the love of Christ compels us. Well, my prayer for, for myself and for us this week, as we go to take that bread and that cup, and we, we see the love of Christ in that bread and that cup, because that, that's the love, that love that remembers the love that put Jesus on the cross for us. And so when we remember, when we remember that, and we take that, we say, you know, Jesus, you know, take away the mess that's in me. Like, we have to ask for that each and every week. I know I do. But, Lord, take away the mess that's in me. We have to, you know, we ask for, we ask for Jesus to wash our feet is what we're really doing there. We know that if we believe in him, he's cleansed us. But our feet get dirty in this world, and, and we take the bread and the cup. We ask him to wash our feet. We remember him for who he is. We thank him. But we said, you know, Lord Jesus, we see your love. Now, may that love fill our hearts and may that love compel us so that we live a week that counts. That we live a week that counts for our Savior and for our King. We wouldn't take it for granted. We wouldn't take those hours, those days, those hours, those minutes, that we wouldn't take them for granted because they're precious. We don't know how many ticks any of us in this room have left. But let's not be worried about that. And let's not be concerned about that. But instead, let's say, Lord, help me to use my ticks in a way that bring you glory and honor. Fill me with your love and your power to make a difference where you've placed me and where you've put me. And may God help us toward that. I know that's heavy this morning. But God is sufficient and God's grace is sufficient to take us where we need to be, even if we don't want to be there. And so we just ask him to move us, shift us as he needs to. So Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you. As we take the bread and the cup, we thank you. We thank you for your word that is powerful in our lives. We thank you that we have your scriptures. We can go back and read and see all the great things you did in Thessalonica. We thank you for how in Maria, the people really wanted to know the truth, and we pray that the people in our spheres of influence, people in our city, Lord, the people in our world would desire to know your truth, and they would go to your word sincerely. And Lord, help us to be fully and utterly convinced that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation. Yeah, we're convinced of that as we take the bread and cup this morning. We're convinced of that as we live in the world this week. But Lord, help us not to live of the world. Help us to make a difference in it, to be light and salt in it. For your glory and honor, dear God. In your name, Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross on our behalf. We praise your holy name. In your name, Jesus. Amen.